So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 13th chapter, verses 18 through 21. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word. May he bring it to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for that illumination. Our dear Lord, these are indeed familiar parables to us, but they are so expertly crafted in the way that Luke puts them together here. The place that he puts them within the rest of his gospel, the way that it ties in to the things that he has been developing, even the very form of the chapter that surrounds it. So, Lord, we pray that as we look at it this morning, we won't sort of shut down and think that, well, I know that, I've got that familiarized, but no, Lord. Help us understand that we are part of the very kingdom that Jesus is explaining to us and what it will be like and how it will grow and what our part in that is and how essential Christ is to that. So we ask that you would truly illuminate our minds this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For most Christians, the growth of the kingdom of God over the last two millennia is something that we're quite familiar with. And as I've kind of indicated so far, we tend to lose the awe of exactly how amazing that is, how miraculous it is that here we are in a church that even though it's quite different, there are a lot of things about this church different, but basically the same teachings, the same doctrine that Jesus and the apostles taught 2,000 years ago. Now, When we put it in its perspective, it is even more amazing. I will remind you something right at the outset that I'm going to try to drill into you this morning. And that is, it all started with one man. It all started with Jesus the Christ. But the, 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 the fact that it started with him even makes it more amazing that it came about the way it did. Because he's an itinerant preacher from a backwater town, Nazareth, in an insignificant province of an insignificant country that is in the Roman Empire. Nobody was paying much attention to anyone who came out of Nazareth. And, and what made it even more difficult was the nature of his message. He wasn't just preaching a message of power and, and, and health and wealth like so many people would like to preach today. He was preaching a message rather of, 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 of humility, uh, of submission, uh, of love, of turning the other cheek, of loving your enemies and praying for those who hated you. Who on earth is going to sign up for a message like that? 600 years later, we're going to see another religion come about. And if you wanted to conquer the world, well, that religion has the right idea. Conquer it by the sword. Overrun everybody. Force them to accept your religion. This way is almost, it's, it seems like it has ingrained in it failure from the very beginning. And yet here we are. For the next 1900 years... 
the growth of the kingdom of God is going to define Western civilization. They're going to be wrapped together. You can't separate the two of them. It's not until, I guess, the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries that a concentrated effort began to develop to wipe out the visible church. It, it gets in the way, especially in the 20th century with Marxism and communism and, 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 and Adolf Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong and, and, and then on into the current age. We don't really have an economic Marxism in this country, but we have a social Marxism and Christianity is simply in the way. It's got to go. But an amazing thing happens to everybody who tries to stomp it out. It just backfires on them. Because wherever you scatter the seeds of that religion, new new pockets grow like leaven in the midst of dough. You can't get rid of it. And what's amazing also is that it works in silence. It works in the dark. It works with no light. It works almost without oxygen, it seems. You'll, you'll, you'll persecute a group of people and think you have it stomped out and all of a sudden here it comes again. I'll be honest with you, I look out in the place we live in South Florida and I get depressed sometimes because it's such a godless place. It's such a, an anti-churched place and, and, and sometimes it seems like the church is declining but you know something about the church because history has taught us that underneath in some silent way either here or someplace in the world the church is exploding because it explodes that way in the heart. It is not something that you can visibly stop. Well, Jesus is going to give us a couple of parables this morning that are going to explain how that happens. It's not by accident. It was explained from the the very beginning. That was the way it's going to be. But two things are going to become essential. Brothers and sisters, you cannot have the kingdom of God without these two things. First and foremost, primarily, it is Christ. You cannot have the kingdom of God without Christ. You cannot remove him from the kingdom of God and have the kingdom of God stand. It'll never happen because it's divinely driven. But you could not have this without Jesus. And secondly, you can't have the kingdom of God without Christians, without the church. And I'm going to explain why. And Jesus is going to explain why in the parable that he gives us. Now, up until this point, if you've been here over the last couple of months, you know that we've talked an awful lot about the cosmic initiative, about Jesus coming to earth, about God taking on the attributes of a human. And we've talked about his objectives. His objectives were to seek and save the lost and to to uh, destroy evil, to stomp on the head of the serpent, if you will. <laughs> Never to make an alliance with evil, but to destroy evil in part now and ultimately completely. Now, we've talked about the various aspects of that. We've talked about what happens when the light goes into the darkness. And we've talked about the spiritual warfare that occurs when the darkness fights back. We've talked about how that darkness and evil uh, infiltrates religion and how the religious leaders of the day were leading the people astray. And Jesus telling the people, please think for yourself and don't just simply allow them to lead you into a pit because your leaders, your culture does not necessarily have your best interest at heart. Now, we've talked about uh, being a servant and the, and, and the great blessings for being a watchful servant and, and the great uh, uh, judgments for not being a, a good servant, for rejecting Jesus and that he will reject you before his father if you reject him before men. We've studied all of this, but the one thing that we haven't seen too much of, we saw it a little bit in the parable of the sower, 
but we haven't seen too much. Well, where does it go from here? What, what, what's the nature of the kingdom? Is Jesus just kind of creating this sort of hodgepodge uh, group of people? This person saved, that person saved? Or is there some kind of a plan? Is there a battle plan? Is there an organic unity to what Jesus is setting about? Well, that's exactly what he is going to share with us this morning. So let's jump into it. There's more context uh, to this, but uh, the, the very first phrase sort of takes us right back into that context. So let's go ahead and start the text, starting in the 18th verse. He said, therefore. All right, those of you who know, what do you ask yourself whenever you see that word in Scripture? What is it there for? Okay, so obviously it's pointing us back to something. Right, And what this is pointing us back to is the story that we studied last week. A story about a woman bent over, crippled, horribly deformed. Her spine probably fused together. No possibility of being cured. She comes into a synagogue where Jesus is teaching. Doesn't say anything about trying to be healed or hoping that Jesus will heal her. She just shows up. Jesus sees her, has compassion for her, calls her over, lays his hand upon her, speaks the word, your disability, you are freed from your disability, and boom, she's healed. What a beautiful story that was. Now, of course, we talked about the religious leader. The ruler of the synagogue got upset because he felt that it conflicted with their traditions about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And we said that's absolutely crazy because Jesus did nothing but touch and say a word. It was God who cured that woman. And you're going to tell God he can't do that on his Sabbath. You're really off the tracks. But when, when, we, when we looked at it in, in a deeper sense, we, we saw in that a beautiful illustration of the salvation experience. What happens? We're all bent souls, folks. Every single one of us. We live in a fallen world. We need to be fixed. We're not going to be able to stand before God in the condition that we are in. And so therefore, when Jesus uh, uh, straightened the bent back, it's a picture of straightening the bent soul. And that's exactly what happens. He calls us. He heals us. We don't necessarily look to be healed. It is all the divine right of Jesus who does that. And he's the absolute redeemer. Now, when we go to this morning's passage, it almost seems at first like Luke is just kind of jumping around. But then we recognize something. I hope that you recognize something. Luke is seamlessly with this, he said, therefore, he is seamlessly moving us from the one to the many. He is showing us the salvation experience, or at least a figurative view of that salvation experience. But that's one woman. That's one isolated woman. Now he's going to show you what happens when millions of people have the same experience. How it grows and how you can't see it on the outside. But when you finish, you have this magnificent tree that is organically unified together. So therefore, we're going to take a look at these parables In that context. So look at the rest of verse 18. He's going to kind of preface this with a couple of rhetorical questions. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Now I know that sometimes you get upset. Or you're not upset. You just get kind of bored when I start talking about grammar and form. But there's a form here that you, you should at least know about. This is a reference to a very famous statement by Isaiah. It's, a, it's the way it's framed, that double question in sort of a rhetorical way. It comes from Isaiah 40, a very an important passage that is a messy 
messianic passage. That's the one that starts out by saying a voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Really talking about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. For the Messiah to come in the cosmic initiative that we've been talking about. Well, a little bit later on in that same chapter. This is what God says through Isaiah. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him with? Notice the form. The form's exactly the same. So Jesus is kind of drawing a line from what he's about to say about the kingdom of God back to the messianic passage that Isaiah is speaking of in Isaiah 40. I challenge you to go read that whole chapter because it fits in beautifully with what this is. But anyway, he asks these two Rhetorical questions. And a rhetorical question, as most of you know, is a question that is asked when the speaker doesn't really expect an answer. He's not waiting for an answer. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when someone speaks like I'm speaking right now, it can easily bounce off of you. I know that you're well aware of that. Uh, you, you, You don't necessarily engage in what's being said. But if I ask you a question, then your mind instantly engages. That's why people quite often ask rhetorical questions. I don't expect an answer to that question, but it helps engage your mind. So this particular question has kind of two parts. The first thing is, what is the kingdom of God like? How are we going to define it? What's the battle plan? What's going to happen with this cosmic initiative that I'm bringing about? And the second one is, to what should we compare it? So in other words, what we realize from those rhetorical questions is that we are about to get an analogy or a metaphor or in this case a simile that helps us understand what the kingdom of God is like. And both of these have to do with that growth. So with that said, let's jump into the first one. Now the first one, the one about the mustard seed, traditionally is seen as the parable that explains the external growth of the kingdom, the way it's going to be visually seen. And he says, um, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew up and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in, the, in its branches. So the very important part, now I'm going to talk later on about why Luke doesn't have anything to say about the size of the mustard seed, about it being a little bitty tiny. Because Luke has got a different focus here and he wants our focus to be on the existence of the seed and the resulting tree. The most important part of this parable, brothers and sisters, is that it starts from a single grain of mustard. One seed. That's Christ. That's the Lord. He is the seed. All throughout scripture we read about the seed and and, and Jesus is that seed. Going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Reading from the New American Standard Version because it actually uses the word seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That seed is Jesus. That's the first telling of the gospel. How God plans to redeem his people. And the seed, the start, the beginning is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus himself said in John 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He is talking about himself. He is that seed. So I'm not going to let you forget that this morning. Okay? It all starts with a single seed. I don't know if you've ever planted a garden or planted plants. Kay and I do it all the time. And, and we normally don't plant a single seed because sometimes that seed doesn't germinate. We'll plant five or six of them. And then when they grow up, we'll trim out those, the shorter ones. And the, the, the largest one is the one that we will keep. Well, that's not what we have here. There is a single grain that is placed in the dirt. So we see that it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed. Let me point something out, uh, sort of bait you here, because I'm not going to be able to really address this in this morning's message. It would take too long. I'm going to do so in the after church. There are anomalies in both of these um, uh, parables. There are incongruities, things that just don't make sense. I used to program computers while I still do, actually. And, and, and an anomaly is something that just doesn't work like it's supposed to. It's a subtle bug that you, that you can't figure out exactly why it is there. Well, there are anomalies in this passage, uh, in both of these, um, um, uh, uh, both of these. And one is right here. Normally, when you're planting a single seed in a garden, you don't sow, okay? You usually plant now, in the, in the parable of the sower and the seed, remember he goes out and he's got a field and he's got a sack full of seed. And the word actually literally is throw. And he throws the seed around and that's the way that it is planted. Here, you have a single seed. So normally, it would be planted in the ground and not sown. Why does Jesus have these anomalies here? I'll just go ahead and tell you. I'll go into greater detail. In the after church, it is to make you think. It's the same reason that he asked a rhetorical question. It is for you to say, hmm, now why is he sowing seed in a garden? It's not that there's any figurative meaning there. It is to captivate your mind so you visualize this and so you think about it. So anyway, this man goes out and he sows in his garden. Once again, if you're going to sow, you normally sow in a field. The mustard plant is actually a pretty big plant and quite often would be something that you would find in a field. But here, it is in a garden. Now, why would it be in a garden? Well, I think that there's a reason for that. I think that the reason that Jesus places this mustard tree in a garden is because in a garden, usually, it's a place that you are monitoring regularly. A field, you go out and you sow the field, and then you go home. It's usually outside of the city, and the people would live in the city areas, and they'd each have a little segment of field out there. And you're not watching it day to day, but if it's your garden... And, and you've sowed something, well, constantly, every day, it is under your inspection. When Kay and I first plant our seeds uh, in the fall, boy, I tell you what, every day we're going out and saying, ah, this one popped up, that one popped up. You're monitoring it. And it's important that this tree is monitored because we're going to see it is a rapid grower. And that's one of the things that's going to come out. Last thing I want to bring out about this parable before, before we start looking at the part or at it as a whole is the conspicuous absence of size. 
Now, both Matthew and Mark talk about the size of the, um, the, the seed. Matthew puts it this way. It is the smallest of all seeds. Mark goes even further. It says it is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Well, here's another anomaly. It's not the smallest seed on earth. We plant seeds in our garden that are smaller than a mustard seed. And I am told... I am told that those great cedars that uh, Ezekiel was talking about that are 120, 130 feet tall, they actually come from seeds that are smaller than a mustard seed, and they're much bigger than a mustard plant. So why do you think Luke left out any reference at all to the size of the mustard seed? Because both Matthew and Mark are making a comparison of something small getting to something that is very large. Now, It's definitely implicit in what Jesus says here, but he left the size of the grain out because what he is interested more in is the oneness of the seed. The, the, the solidarity, I mean, the solitariness of that seed is only one seed. And if that seed is Christ, then the church has never, can never forget that it has one seed that started the whole thing. And that is Jesus. and any attempts to remove him just destroys the entire idea. Well, anyway, that's the idea of that size. Now, so far we have that the seed is singular. And we have the idea that it's close at hand and that we're able to monitor it. Now, let's take a look at the resulting tree that comes from this. Continuing in that verse. It grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in it. Now, I'm told that the particular variety of mustard tree that they're talking about grows to about 10 to 12, maybe 15 feet. But the extraordinary thing about this particular tree and the reason that Jesus chose it, I believe, is that it reaches that height in almost the first year, just over a year. Now, that cedar we're talking about that grows to 120, 130 feet tall, many, many years pass by before it reaches that size. You take an acorn from which the mighty oaks come from. Now, the acorn is larger than a mustard seed, but the oak is larger than the mustard plant. But it takes years and years for that to occur. If you plant a citrus tree, you know it's going to be five, six, seven years before you actually see any fruit from that tree. Not so with the mustard tree. Mustard tree immediately pops up. It grows so fast you can virtually see it grow. And you can remember, and here's the point. When you plant a mustard seed, if I was planting, let me back up. If I was planting a cedar and I planted the seed, by the time I've got a full-grown cedar tree, I'm probably 15, 20 years, I have forgotten about the seed altogether. I don't remember the day that I planted that seed. But if you have a mustard tree, you're only within the same year and you don't lose sight of the fact that you went out and you put one grain of mustard seed in the ground and look what you've got about a year later. And it's blooming. It's got, it's got more seed of its own. So there is an organic nature, and I'll explain what I mean by organic. There's an organic nature. The seed and the tree and what the tree produces is all wrapped up into one. That's a very important aspect of why we have the mustard tree. One, one, one more detail I want to bring out, and then we'll try to see what, uh, what, what this uh, parable actually means. And that's that the birds of the air made their nest in the branches. 
Now, um, I, again, I am told that by the fall, after it's planted in the spring, say, that the, the, the branches are strong enough, not just for birds. Notice it doesn't say that the birds roost in his branches. It says that they build their nests, their homes in the branches. So the branches are strong enough. There's enough shade to make nice homes for these birds to, to raise their youngs. They, they come and they nest in the, the tree. So what, how are we supposed to see that? Again, we're not allegorizing it, but we do recognize that there's a principle here. So what is the principle? Why did Jesus include this statement about the birds? Well, I'm going to give you three options, three ideas with this. The first one is wrong, I'll tell you. The second one is a maybe, and the third is probably definite, okay? Um, the, the, the three ideas. The first idea, and by the way, it's the most popular one, and is the idea that these are the demonic forces that are attacking the, the kingdom of God, that, that they come and they nest in the tree, kind of like the weeds in the midst of the wheat. And, and the reason, there's plenty of good reason that we would come to that conclusion. First of all, we've been talking about the cosmic initiative. We've been talking about what happens when light invades darkness. We've been talking about spiritual warfare. Plus, just a couple of chapters ago, we read the parable of the sower. Remember the seeds that were uh, sowed on the path and the birds of the air came and grabbed them away and those were demonic forces. So it, it's, it's not unusual that, that we would see would see that. But just because birds represent demonic evil in other places, other parables, does not mean necessarily that they have to mean the same thing here. So I'm going to say that's categorically false. That is not the purpose of this particular um, uh, parable. And, and there is a reason, there is a message here, and, but, but it's not that one. The second idea is that the birds nesting in the tree, and, and this, this is a good idea. I mean, actually, I, I think there's figuratively um, a good, good grounds for this, that they represent the Gentiles, all the Gentiles that are going to come from all over the world, and they're going to be grafted into the tree. They're going to be part of this great kingdom of God. In fact, in just a few verses um, in Luke, we're going to read this, and people will come from east and west and from north north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So in a very figurative sense, those birds represent all the people who are going to come into the kingdom. But you see, there's a little bit of a problem there, okay? Because the birds are nesting in the tree. They're not part of the tree. Now, I'm a Gentile, okay? And if I'm just a bird in a nest in the tree, then I'm not part of the organic tree that has been created that's the kingdom of God. So therefore, I don't think that the birds are Christians coming in to the, the kingdom of God. I think rather that what we are seeing are pagan countries that are going to be beneficially affected by the kingdom of God. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to make their way under the shade of that tree other than just the Christians. In fact, 
There's a great uh, picture that we get in Daniel. This is actually Nebuchadnezzar trying to explain to Daniel a dream that he had. And Daniel is, is going to tell him that this particular picture is Babylon. But many scholars believe that this is actually also a picture, sort of a long view of the kingdom of God. It goes like this. This tree, its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. Imagine the benefit that God's kingdom has had on this world. Imagine the marginalized who are looked after. Imagine the plight of women as it was in the day of Jesus and the way it is now. Imagine the, 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 the care for those who need uh, medical care and, and the giving and the servanthood that is part of the kingdom of God and apply that to the world. Everyone benefits from the kingdom of God. We live in a country that has benefited for all this existence from the kingdom of God because our very foundation was was built on Christian principles. And so therefore, there is a benefit to the world that is around us. Dr. Sproul wrote a book, and I can't remember which one it was, but what he said in that book has stuck with me all these years. He said that to be a Christian is the best practice for a human. We use that term in computers. Best practice is the best way to do things. Well, the, the, the best life that a human being can live is a Christian life. When you start talking about dependence on God, the peace with reconciliation with God, you talk about the ethical standards and loving our neighbors and serving each other. There is no better way for humans to live. It's the best way for a, a family to be, for a, a couple to be. It's the best way for a country to be. So those who are in the country, in the place, are benefiting from the tree that is the kingdom of God. Isn't it ironic that all those people who are out there trying to destroy Christianity are sitting perched in the tree that Christianity built, and they're trying to bring it down. They're only going to bring destruction upon themselves. Well, nonetheless, Let's talk about the tree itself. The tree is an example of organic sustainability. Now, let me explain those two words. When I say that the kingdom of God or this tree represents something organic, I'm not saying that it is grown without pesticides and fertilizers. Uh, They didn't even have those things in those days. The way that I'm using the word organic means to be an integral part of the whole, right out of the dictionary. Having systematic coordination of parts or forming an integral element of a whole. What it means is that there's a unity, there's a bond, it's all one unit, it's not disconnected, it, it, it is organic in its nature. So this tree representing the kingdom of God is organic. Just exactly as we read earlier when Jesus says this in John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the mustard tree, as I said earlier, you still remember the seed you planted. It grows up before your eyes and you have fruit to bear in the very first year with a big tree that came out of a tiny little seed. That is the organic nature of the kingdom of God being um, displayed for us right there. 
It's also a picture of sustainability. Now, when we talk about sustainability, if you were here for our discussion of the sower and the soils, the sower went out to sow. I explained what a sustainable farm was in in those days. You take a portion of your harvest, a portion of the seeds that you harvest, and rather than eating them or turning them into bread, you set them aside for the next year so that you can replant your fields. That's a sustainable farm, a farm that sustains itself. Well, a mustard tree is sustainable in the fact that it grows quickly and reproduces quickly so that it is not years before you have any ability to, um, to, to, to do that. So it, it is both organic and sustainable. So with that said, let me just give you the points that we've learned from, um, from the first parable that talks about the external nature of of the kingdom of God. Very first thing is, I'm going to drill it into you. I'm not going to let you forget you. You forget it. It comes from a single seat. It comes from a single source. And that source is Jesus. Without Jesus and the kingdom of God, you have no kingdom of God. It's going to grow very fast. It's going to grow up almost right before your eyes. And the exponential growth of the kingdom is beyond belief. It will turn into a vast tree, a very large tree in relationship to the seed that was planted, just like the kingdom of God did. It is going to have a profound impact on the environment in which it grows. Like birds can nest in, in, the, in the trees, it, 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 is, it is capable. Of, of changing the world, changing the society in which it is grown. All of those fit nicely in with the idea of the kingdom of God. So, we have the first parable speaking of what the outer picture, the external nature of the kingdom is going to be. Let's turn to the second one wherein we are going to get an idea of what the internal growth of the kingdom is. Turn to the 21st verse now. First of all, I'm sorry, to 21st. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? That's just kind of restating that that, uh, uh, rhetorical question. Once again, talking about something that he wants to make a simile of and tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. This time he's going to focus on the internal nature of that kingdom. Look in verse 21. It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Was there ever a little tiny verse that said seemingly so little that meant so much, that is so deep and robust in the way that it is um, to be understood? Let's take a look at it and pick it apart first and then we'll put it back together again. First thing that we notice is that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Now, if you're reading along the NIV version, you probably see that it says it's like yeast. Well, actually, that is technically correct, but not representative of all of what Jesus is saying in this parable. The Greek dictionary actually kind of calls them out on that when they say this. The popular understanding of this word suggests a product that was foreign to ancient baking practices. They didn't have any yeast. Yeast wasn't invented until World War I. Okay, So she didn't use yeast. What she had was leaven. 
And what leaven is, it's a, it, it has an active yeast culture in it, but there's no such thing as dried yeast that they extract from it. Now, what would happen is you would have a little lump of yesterday's dough. Again, the sustainability aspect comes in. Yesterday's dough, you made into loaves and you baked and everything, and you took one little bit of it after it had leavened, and you save it. You put it in a cloth, put it in a damp, uh, a cool place, and save it to the next time that you bake. So a leaven is a piece of dough that has a, um, an active um, yeast colony growing in it. You do know that yeast is a fungus, don't you? And that every time you eat bread, you're eating fungus uh, that, that, that makes that. But not, nonetheless, it, it does talk about a sustainability. It is alive. I am told, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm told that there are uh, uh, restaurants and bakeries out in San Francisco, you know, they're famous for their sourdough bread, that have been using the same leaven for 150 years, okay? It doesn't die because, you see, what you're doing is you're taking this dough and, and putting it in the rest of the dough, and it becomes part of that, and then you're saving part of that dough until the next day, and you just keep doing it over and over and over and over again, and you never have to buy yeast that way, <laughs> but um, you have to make sure that you, that you continue the baking because once that yeast eats up all the sugar in that little lump of dough, there's nothing else for it to feed on, and you may lose um, all of that. Well, anyway, that's what leaven is, and that's the, that's the part of this that we are supposed to see. Now, notice also that it is a, a woman who takes the leaven and um, inserts it or hides it in a lump of dough. Um, baking in those days was women's work. Um, but I want you to see something about Luke that I, I don't know if you have noticed. Um, Luke, um, probably more so than any of the other gospel writers, has made sure that we see that women are a vital part of the kingdom of God. I mean, going all the way back to the nativity with uh, Mary and Elizabeth and Anna and, and really a kind of a focus on women. Now, we're not to make anything about this woman. She's just a woman, just like we weren't going to make anything about the man in the last parable. He's just a man. But something that Luke does that's very interesting, and it's noticeable once you start looking for it, he quite often brings up male-female pairs when he lumps things together. Here we have a man who plants a, a, a mustard plant, and we have a woman who breaks the bread. If we back up just a little bit, we had a man who wanted to get rid of the fig tree in his vineyard because it wasn't bearing fruit, representing the religious leaders. And then we have a woman who runs afoul of those religious leaders when Jesus heals her. Earlier when Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace to the world, but to bring division, and I will pit a father against his son and a mother against her daughter. So all through the book of Luke, Luke brings out pairs and and, and one of the reasons for that is he really wants us to know something about the kingdom of God. There is Christ, and then there's everybody else, okay? In, in the spiritual sense, there, there, there's no difference. We are all on the same plane. Now, there's obviously differences between men and women. There's differences in the church between men and women and the positions they hold. But nonetheless, as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, there's no difference. And Luke wanted to make sure that we recognize that. So the woman takes and hides this leaven in a lump of dough. Okay, She's already mixed it with water and she's got a big old lump. 
So she takes the little bit of leaven that's got the active yeast formula in our colony growing in it, and she hides it. That's important. She inserts it. The actual definition is to put into so that it is out of sight, to hide. It is something you can't see, and that's the difference between the external mustard tree and this particular parable because all of the action is going on inside where you can't see it. Usually when she's finished, she's going to put a towel over it, put it in a place, and let it rise on its own. It may double or triple in size, but it's nothing like the mustard seed and the mustard tree. The focus is on what is happening on the inside. The chemical reactions, actually, it's, a, 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 it's, it's the yeast itself that is replicating itself. But nonetheless, he, she puts it in there. When to put it in and hide it like that describes a process, and those of you who are bakers know what this process is, a process of kneading. Right? That's what you do to your dough once you're trying to work the leaven through it. You you knead it and you twist it and turn it and turn it over and knead it. And what you're doing is you're taking that little bit of leaven and you're breaking it into a thousand pieces. And so it is as much as you can evenly um, uh, distributed throughout that dough. Interestingly, on Wednesday night, we are talking about the expansion of the kingdom. And we are looking at the church in Jerusalem. And we see that the persecution of the Jerusalem church caused the church to scatter. And they're going to scatter across the Mediterranean basin. And that backfires on everybody who's trying to destroy the church. Because every place, there's a little bitty tiny bit of yeast. All of a sudden, it starts replicating itself and it starts growing. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. You cannot stomp it out. Because it is growing in a place that you can't see it. Because it's growing in the hearts and the souls of people. The last thing that uh, we read here before we start trying to analyze this is that she hid it in three measures of flour and it was all, till it was all leavened. That's the kneading process. It permeates through, it replicates itself, it feeds off of the sugars in the dough. It releases carbon dioxide gas, which pumps little air holes in it that makes it nice and fluffy. So when you bake it, just so you know that you're not eating fungus unless you're eating raw dough, um, it kills all the fungus off when you bake it, and you're left with this very palatable bread instead of a flat, lifeless, sort of tasteless bread um, as it would start out with. And so therefore, the woman uses Three measures of flour. Now, if you're following, if you're reading in the New American Standard, it goes ahead and translate that into pecks. And I'm not exactly sure what a peck is, but I'm told that three pecks makes about a half a bushel. And a half a bushel makes about six dry gallons. And that translates into about 50 pounds of flour. Okay. Now, the way that most scholars actually end up saying that, because nobody knows exactly what the measures were, most scholars will say that this is as much the most dough that a single woman can handle by herself. 50 pounds of flour. You know, when you go to the store and you buy your flour, it's in this little five-pound bag, okay? Ten of those, one woman, 
is handling it. Obviously, she's a relatively strong woman. She does this every day. So she handles this dough, 50 pounds, pretty good-sized lump. And that's what it's it's pointing out, is that this is not a, you know, a a real small one. Okay? So let's kind of put these things together. Again, focusing on just the second parable for just a moment. From a very small amount of leaven, again, a large lump of dough is completely transformed. Now, size is not the important part of this, but it is obviously still um, a part of it. And notice that unlike the mustard tree that grows visibly, this grows in a way that you can't see it. And actually, it doesn't grow. It's not, it's, it's not growing. There, there's no growth of the, of, the, of the yeast. A yeast is a single-cell fungus, a single-cell organism. organism. It replicates. It duplicates and then duplicates and duplicates and duplicates. I mean, it's a replication process that permeates all the way through the dough. And, and it feasts on those sugars and doesn't need light doesn't need oxygen in order to work. I mean, after a while, it's going to have to have oxygen, but it's completely something that you cannot see. So let's apply that to the kingdom of God because that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying this kingdom of God is exactly like that. So very small amount of leaven replicates the whole lump. One seed, 11 disciples, however many, turning into about 120 people before Pentecost, and then all of a sudden we're off to the races. 3,000, 5,000, Luke can't keep up. Exponential growth. So it starts out from a little bitty tiny leaven, and it begins to replicate at an extraordinary rate. The idea of exponential growth is literally redefined. Now, here's where I want you to see the connection with what we saw. Last week, we saw a woman horribly bent externally, physically, who was set straight by the love of Christ. When actually we're talking about a horribly bent soul that is set straight by the love of Christ. We'll take that and start replicating it. Start multiplying it by the millions. Because that's exactly what's going on inside that lump of dough. That's what's going on inside the kingdom of heaven. You can't see it. You can't see what's going on in communist China. You can't see what's going on in North Korea. You can't see what's going on in the Middle East. You look on the outside and it looks like the church is being destroyed. On the inside it's growing in leaps and bounds. Exploding, tumultuous, undulating, bubbling underneath that place. That's the way the kingdom of heaven grows. And that's what he's saying. That it's just millions of people are growing, are replicating in that way. And the more you try to scatter them, the more you try to destroy them, the more you try to knead them out of existence, they just multiply all the faster. Because you see, we're not the ones doing this. We weren't the ones doing it when Jesus started it out 2,000 years ago. It is the Holy Spirit that is driving this, and he knows exactly what he's doing. The gates of hell will never deter him. And so therefore, the kingdom of heaven is always going to grow. It's going to grow like a a mustard tree in one sense, and it's going to grow like this this dough. There's one thing I want to make sure that you see, brothers and sisters. Don't miss this. The leaven does not become part of the dough. The leaven is not put there 
so that it can become part of the dough. The leaven transforms the dough. And that is what the people of God are called to do, to transform the world. That's exactly how we're going to see it. Let's step back and let's look at both of these because we have a beautiful picture of the kingdom of which we are a part. It starts with Christ. Let me say it again. You cannot remove Christ from the kingdom of God. That should be an absolutely no-brainer. But it's been people have been trying to do it for 2,000 years now. They're certainly trying to do it right now. It is a kingdom that will experience amazing growth. I mean, history completely bears that out. There has never been in the annals of human existence a, an exponential growth of any philosophy, any mindset, any religion, the way that Christianity spread during its first 800 years, 1800 years. Okay, unprecedented in human history. Now, of course, you can say Islam. Look at what's happened to Islam. Yeah, they, they started in northern Africa and began to conquer nation after nation. There has never been a nation that has voluntarily converted to Islam. They've all been conquered. Not so with Christianity. It happens where you can't see it. It happens in the hearts of people. It is driven by the Holy Spirit's. But you know something, no matter how great or expansive the growth, we're, we're, we, we need to get down to that one cell yeast level. Because what happens is one cell tells another cell about Jesus. One soul that has been unbent tells a bent soul how their soul got unbent. And that is the process, that's the battle plan, that's the modus operandi. That's what happened when you put the leaven in the lump of dough. The leaven transforms the dough silently, undercover if you will. Not, no big crusades. You didn't see Paul say, come on, let's go out and rent the Colosseum at Philippi and fill it full of people. And we're going to have a wonderful crusade and hundreds of people are going to walk down the aisle. It's not what he did. He went and he concentrated on just the one church that is there. When Jesus taught, he taught 11 or 12 and then made into 11 disciples. That's the, that's the plan. That's how it grows. It grows silently. It doesn't need the big... Now, I'm not saying anything about big crusades. I mean, there's wonderful. I mean, it's, it's a good thing. But that's not necessary. That's not the way the kingdom is truly grown. It's grown where you can't see it. Holy Spirit changing one heart and another. And after that amazing growth, after that incredible growth, we are not talking about one group in China, one group in Japan, one group in South America, one group in Australia, and they have nothing to do with each other. I can meet, and I have met, a man that was raised in Japan to Shinto um, parents who have had exactly the same experience that I've had. Worships the same Lord. Believes in the same Bible. Has the same doctrines. Because it's organic. It doesn't, it's not separate. It's not a hodgepodge of people believing different things. Now, of course, there's offshoots and there's heresies. And we know that because the enemy's at work. But what Jesus is telling us is that his invisible church, the church that he looks down when he sees his church, it is unified. It is organic. It is all part of the whole. Just like Jesus said when we read that earlier chapter, that earlier verse from John 15. So, brothers and sisters, let me kind of make an application out of this. 
There are two essential elements. And I hope I've made myself clear. There are two essential elements to the kingdom of God. If you remove either one of them or both of them, you no longer have the kingdom of God. The primary essential element for the kingdom of God is Jesus. And when I say it's Jesus, I don't mean a watered-down, manufactured, changed kind of Jesus that so many people want him to be. I'm talking about the Jesus of the Bible. I'm talking about the Jesus as he is described to us in both the Old and the New Testament. I am talking about the Jesus who is the Son of God in the flesh, incarnate. I'm talking about the the Jesus who, who humbled himself by taking on the attributes of a man, being born in a, in, in a backwater period, a place like Nazareth, being born to, to artisan parents, and then to, on his own, begin the process of establishing the kingdom of God. One person at a time, one apostle at a time. I'm talking about the Jesus who went to the cross. I'm talking about the Jesus who lived a perfect life so that his righteousness could be imputed to me. I'm talking about the Jesus who hung upon that cross as a sacrificial, substitutionary atonement to take the fierce wrath, the fire of God, baptized in the wrath that should have been meant for me so that my sins would be atoned for. I'm talking about the Jesus who died on that cross and they took his dead body and they put it in a tomb and on the third day, God raised him from the grave to show that he accepted his sacrifice on my behalf. I'm talking about the Jesus who ascended to heaven, was coronated as king of kings, rules at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, right this very moment, directs his kingdom and will come again in power and glory and judgment. That Jesus. You cannot remove that Jesus from the kingdom of God and have the kingdom of God. You may call yourself a church. You may use the word Christian, but you're not. Because you've removed the seed, the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Devastated when I see the apostasy and the blasphemy that churches are doing. Devastated when I read Vatican II where the Catholic Church back in the 70s says that there are other paths to salvation other than Jesus. I'm devastated when they say all you need to do is follow his teaching and be a good person. And, and, and you don't need Jesus. I'm devastated when people say, even now, the deconstructionists, that Jesus did not die on the cross. That would have made God, uh, uh, I mean, he died on the cross, but not as a sacrificial substitutionary atonement, because that makes God a child abuser. That's blasphemy. And if that's what you believe, I'm sorry, you're not a Christian. And you don't belong to the church of God or to the kingdom of God. The second aspect of the kingdom is Christians. Now, that's a secondary necessity. Now, why are Christians necessary for the kingdom of God? Well, every kingdom needs to have a king, a domain, a dominion, and subjects. We are those subjects, but why are we important? How come you can't remove us from the kingdom? Well, one reason and one reason only. Because God has ordained that he will work through the likes of us. To silently, like leaven in the midst of dough, 
Travel through that dough, one person telling one person about Jesus. My soul was bent and now it's straight and let me tell you who did that to me. That's the way the kingdom of God spreads. If you remove those Christians, those real Christians, and again, brothers and sisters, I hate to keep using qualified words when I say Christian. But it is such an abused word now. I'm not talking about a nominal Christian. I'm not talking about a Sunday-only Christian that comes and watches their watch to see when they can go home. I'm not talking about a Christmas and Easter Christian. I'm not talking about a Christian in name only. I'm talking about a slave to Jesus Christ. Someone who follows him. Someone who loves him. Someone who is subservient to him. Has given their life to him. Picked up their cross and follows him. That is what the kingdom of God must have. Because we are the change agents. You realize that, don't you? We're that yeast in the midst of dough. We're the change agents. We're the change agents by the the will of the Father. We have been called into the loaf to make changes in the loaf. Can you imagine what would be like? I I mean, just think about how ridiculous it is to turn some of these parables around. Okay, Jesus says there's this leaven. We're going to put it in the piece of dough and it's going to spread throughout it. That's, that, that's just the way it works. But, you know, see what the church has done is they've done this. They've said, you know something, if we put the leaven, if we put the yeast in there in the midst of that dough, we're going to offend some of those folks. So, first of all, we've got to do is we've got to take that leaven and we've got to somehow kill the yeast. We've got to get the yeast out of it. We, we, we don't want that because we want to be just like the rest of the world. So we're going to inject ourselves into that dough and we'll all get along and be just fine. That's not what the church is called to do, folks. The church is called to transform the world, not to be part of it. The church is called to transform the lump completely and totally until it's all leavened. That is what the church is called to do. We are... Indeed, the change agents. So let me leave you with this. When we start talking about the kingdom of God, there are a lot of things that we don't have anything to do with. We don't have anything to do with who is invited into the kingdom of God. That is the sovereign domain of God the Father. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. That is his sovereign domain. We have absolutely nothing to do with the redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, the atonement of our sins. That is all the sovereign domain of God the Son. He's the one who hung on the cross. He's the one who is our redeemer. And you believe in him and that is how that is applied to you. And we have absolutely nothing to do with setting the bent soul straight. That is the domain of God the Spirit. God and God alone is the one who does all that. But as I said... We are the ones that God has ordained would be the change agents in the dough, in the world that he has placed us into. We are the ones used by God for his purposes. We are the ones who facilitate the work of the king of the spirit as he unbends the souls around us. We are the ones who are called to protect and share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that what is happening on the inside of their souls makes sense on the outside and they come to a fuller understanding of who Jesus is. We are the change agents who are designed to reflect the ethics of the kingdom of heaven rather than the ethics of this fallen world. 
We are the change agents who are given the responsibility of the integrity of the doctrine of the church to protect and adore and teach and preach the infallible, inerrant word of God. That is what we are called to do. And we are the ones to show visibly the love of Christ that has changed the heart on the inside. But brothers and sisters, the moment... The moment we decide that we don't need Jesus, we become a withered branch of no value to the kingdom at all. The the moment that a church decides we don't need the seed, the original, the one who started all this, we, we become an apostate church and our lampstand is gone. Read you once again what we read several times now from John. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Brothers and sisters. Together, there's nothing that is impossible. On our own, we can do nothing. But as long as we are in the, in, in the organic tree, the, the seed is still our king, there's nothing that we cannot do. Let me leave you with a quote from Dr. Sproul. I love some of the ways that he puts things. He says, with Christ, all things are possible. A woman bent in half can be made straight. And a culture twisted and distorted can be turned right side up when the people of God act like the people of God. You think about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have put this kingdom together, that your plan is so amazing, that you could tell us about it 2,000 years ago, and then we can watch 2,000 years of history. We can watch how it positively came about and we can watch the negative ways that the enemy tried to subvert it. We can see the power of your spirit over and over again, bringing the church out of the ashes as it were and reestablishing it just like leaven that moves through a lifeless, tasteless lump of dough. Lord, thank you and I just pray that we will understand our responsibility in all of this. We are the change agents. We are the ones that you use. We are not to be left on the shelf. We have to enter that lump of dough. And yes, it's tumultuous. Yes, it, it, it is difficult. But Lord, you're building a tree and we're part of that tree. And this is what you're calling to us is. May we take it seriously. We give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen.